0: Good morning I love Jesus and because I love Jesus I love gathering with his people Um, I am in John 4 Um, This is a incredible powerful passage You can pray for me that I can get my arms around it There's so much here that's just so profoundly Um, life-changing So flip or if you're on your phone or whatever you were doing i'm in yeah, john 4 if you don't have a bible and want one you can stand up and get an niv study bible off that table we give them away um, there's also one year bibles on that table you ought to grab um, if you're online and need a bible say something in the comments section and we'll see if we can mail you one okay um so i'm gonna i'm in john 4 we're gonna do a, cri- a quick cross reference to exodus 3 so that's way back genesis exodus in the beginning of the bible And then we're going to do another cross-reference to Revelation 21. So fascinating because we're in the middle of the Bible, John, but we're going to look back all the way to the beginning in Exodus and then at the end in Revelation. Sound good? Okay. Um, A lot of times when I open my Bible in the morning, um, I will start with the question, Lord Jesus, what do you want me to see? What do you want me to know? And what do you want me to do? So let's just, um, well, let's let's do it like this. I had a, a friend recently. He reached out to me, and I hadn't seen him in a long time. And he said, Michael, the most impactful about my uh, thing about my relationship with you was we would drive to college together. We'd often surf in the morning, and then we'd drive to college together. And he said, you just pray. You just, like, have a conversation with the Lord. And you never really said amen. And, and I actually want to invite you as... Um, as a church, as people, into that type of relationship with the Lord. So l- let me self-disclose something. Um, I never pray very long. But I never go very long without praying. You hear me? So in other words, th- this is a conversation and a relationship, and if you could gather anything from, from what you even see and hear and experience here in this place, is there is an opportunity for you as an individual to be known and to know a holy creator God and to actually journey through life walking with Him and Him walking with you. It's amazing. So we actually, and, and this is this is by design, we're even going to see an encounter today that Jesus has with a very unusual woman. And the, the point of all of this is not that we would give you a little nice package or sell you an idea, or you'd go out with a little nugget. I actually want to ask hard questions. I want to challenge you to think. I want you to think beyond perhaps what you've ever done before. I want you to open up the word and go, oh my goodness, Jesus is amazing. And then I want you to walk out of here actually. Digging into and continuing that ongoing relationship with him. Yeah? So you can be a doubter, you can be like a questioner, you can be an atheist, you can say these crazy people that worship that long. Any of that is just fine. All I want you to do is, is, is join with us in falling into this relationship that we're inviting and he's inviting you to have with him. Yeah? We're a little messy by design. Okay. Um,. So let's say that together. Lord Jesus, what do you want me to see? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? So by even saying that, you're opening your heart to an interactive relationship with the Holy God. And some of you are sitting out there going, what? God wants to talk to me? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Grab a one your Bible on the way out, and I'm a firm believer that before you begin any single day, you ought to start and open a Bible. Now, um, I'm going to touch on this in a few minutes, but I'm going to touch it right now because I think it's really important. And Meg Gamelli, you helped me so much with this. Meg actually said to me, um, she was uh, joking about me getting up early in the morning, and she was like, it's just too much. And I went up, oh, ding, ding, ding. I was like, I need to actually take a minute and help everyone understand where my journey with Jesus started. So, Um, I've been a Christian a long time, but seven or eight years ago, um, I had never read through the entire Bible in a year. That soon, you probably shouldn't be a pastor. You're probably right. (laughs) So what I started doing is I started reading uh, in the one-year Bible, the proverb. Do you know how long that is? It's like two verses. You know how long that takes? Two seconds. So I decided this year, Lord, I'm going to read the proverb every day. And guess what I did? I took two seconds every day. Sometimes it was the morning. Sometimes it was the evening. Now, go with me here a minute because this is important as we even get into this. If you know physics, an object in motion stays in? An object at rest stays at? All you need to do is give Jesus one little... Read the proverb... Guess what happened the next year? I think I'll add the psalm. Really, this is true. Now, let me even back the train up one more second, because you need to understand this. Where did my journey of discipline before God begin? This is absolutely embarrassing, and you need to know it. It's really flossing my teeth. I hate flossing. I hate it. I didn't do it for like 34 years. I really didn't, I promise. And I go to the dentist and they would say every year. And so finally, I was like, Lord Jesus, you've got to help me with this. I really asked him. And I started. Now, here's what I'm saying get into motion. Michael, I've never given financially. Great. Commit to give $10 a week. You don't want to do it here? Great. Do it somewhere. I've never read my Bible great. I'm not even a Christian. Wonderful. Grab one out on your way out and just take the step because once you're in motion, you will stay in. It's very easy to steer a moving vehicle. It is very difficult to steer a parked car. Okay. There we go. We're rolling. Man. Y'all are good. Okay. So Exodus, uh, or excuse me, John 4, let's just open. Um, We're going to try to take a look at uh, John 3.16 in action. We're going to take a look at Jesus, who is the divide breaker or the bridge builder, you could call them both things. We're going to take, we're going to actually pivot possibly for a minute into what does it mean um, to develop and let springs of living water rise up from within you, Um, We're going to take a look at worship, because this is a sort of a topic in here. Um, We're going to get at one of the most powerful verses, um, I think, in in all of the Bible, because it's Jesus declaring who he is, Um, and then we're going to get into um, what happens when just one person really surrenders their life to King Jesus. So, really profound chapter. Lord Jesus, help us as we open this thing up. Okay. John chapter 4. Here we go. Now, I'm reading the NIV, by the way. So, uh, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. It's like, you know, church growth competition or something. (laughs) That's a real thing. But I love the way Jesus responds to it. Look at this. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Lord, may you measure us by what the people we empower do. Verse 3, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So why did he leave Judea? He was not going to engage in a silly controversy. It's like, I don't care, I'm out. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, uh, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Okay, there's so much there. Um, Let's start, we'll just work through it. Uh, Jesus, so Jesus was in the southern part of Israel. You have the northern part of Israel up here. Samaria is a straight shot, about a three-day journey in between uh, Galilee and where Jesus is. So it's like, whoop. And uh, everyone in Israel would actually go around Samaria, and it was about a six-day journey up to Galilee. And, and here's why. Uh, Samaritans, um, without digging too deep into it, but Samaritans uh, were a group of um, half-Jewish people. Okay, so uh, what happened is the Assyrians actually um, captured some of the tribes of Israel in like, I don't know, I think it's like 727 or 730. And there was a few guys that were left that didn't get captured. And those guys looked around and said, there's no women around, so we're going to take wives that are foreign. So they took foreign wives, they begin to have kids, and those kids have kids. And you have a breed um, of people who is half Jewish, um, half Gentile. And guess what the Jewish people feel about this group? hate them. So the Samaritans um, adopt, uh, eventually, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five mosaic books um, of the Bible, but they reject the rest of it. And because they're so hated and rejected, if you've ever been discriminated against, this is what's going on here today, but if you've ever been, um, they were so hated and rejected by the Jews uh, that they actually set up their own holy mountain, and they set up their own temple, and they kind of rewrote history to say, hey, this is what God's really about, not Jerusalem and what's happening over here. So you've got some probably self-deception and other things going on. But there is such fierce hatred. Um, And if you've ever uh, read the Good Samaritan story, anybody know that one? Come on, okay. Little light. I just this is a side nugget, but it's worth even making note of. The good Samaritan story is actually so powerful because the man, the traveler in the story is going around Samaria, cuz he so hates Samaritans. And if you remember, he gets beaten up and left for dead. And who comes along to help him? Revelation into the heart of Jesus. Okay. So, uh, now, I love that it says in verse 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria, because geographically, he did not have to. It was a call by God to go through Samaria. So, he came to this town, um, and he comes to this well, Jacob's well. I'm not going to go here, but if you want to, Genesis 33, Genesis 48, and Joshua 24 all dip into Jacob's well. It's just a very sacred place for the Jews. Now, um, I've actually... uh, pulled up and drank water from this well. I actually have some somewhere. We moved and it's in a box somewhere and I couldn't find it. I was going to bring you some water and go, here's some water from this actual well. It is a, it's a, such a powerful place because of what we're about to read. So Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So what do we just learn about Jesus? Fully God, fully human tired, sweaty, hot, Um, thirsty. Somebody said it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, know something about the culture here as we embark upon the next couple sentences. Um, At noon um, in the desert, very few trees, very hot, very dry. Everyone rests. Okay, so no one's traveling. Everyone would have gone into a tent, would have sought shelter. There's a rest period in the middle of the day, so you get this early morning work, a little bit of rest, and then work again in the afternoon. That way it's cooler and you can actually survive in the desert. So, um, verse 7, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Okay, so we know several things. Um, Jesus is very unusual, first of all, um, that he's traveling at... High noon, okay. So he has come to a place, and then that a woman is coming to draw water at high noon is also very unusual, and you know immediately um, that she's been is being actively hated and rejected by all her people, so, because no one would draw water at high noon okay? Everyone would be resting. You draw water in the morning or in the evening, but certainly not at high noon. So you got this woman who's coming to draw water um, at high noon, and then secondly, uh, in her village, which was some distance away, there was another well. So this woman is so hated and rejected by her people, or feels such self-hatred, uh, self-loathing, self-rejection, that she isn't even getting water from the well that is closest to her house. So she's doing two things. She's deciding, I'm going to get water at high noon when I know nobody's going to be there. I'll be all by myself. I can hide. And then secondly, she's journeying, not to the closest well from her house, but she's going to go way, way, way out of her way because she's so ashamed or so something that she's trying to avoid people. Okay? So that's how you got to go into this sort of thinking. All right. Um, Now... Jesus says, will you give me a drink? How do most church people start conversations? I love Jesus because he actually is willing to put himself in a vulnerable spot and ask for help. So he opens. This isn't a marketing sales gimmick. This isn't a slick slogan. This isn't the four spiritual laws, even, although I find those to be true. Um, this is, he is he asks himself. So fully God, fully man, creator of the universe. He knows this lady and everything about her, and he sits down, and he asks her for a drink. Now, the other thing that you ought to know going into this moment is um, this is, it's a, um, the well's probably 100 or 150 feet um, deep, um, and it's a it's a percolating well. So it's not like a gushing um, spring of water. It's like a cistern way down there, and the water slowly drips in, and collects. And so, um, in this day, a rabbi, uh, so a, a Jewish teacher, would actually teach that in public, you're not even supposed to speak to your own wife. Okay, so if Jesus is a rabbi, even if you don't know him yet as um, Savior of the world or Messiah, which we're about to open up, but he is all of a sudden sitting at a well and he is asking um, for this uh, a Samaritan woman who all the Jewish people hate. So number one, he is breaking an ethnic um, divide. This is also worth mentioning here. What color is Jesus's skin? Dark. What color is Jesus's hair? What color are Jesus's eyes? What color is Jesus' native language? Not English is what I'm getting at. <laughs> Lest you think Jesus was a fair-skinned, blonde-haired, skinny man. Dark skinned dark hair, dark eyes, non-English, non-American, built stones all the time. That's who this guy was, 30 years old. Okay. And he sits down and he says, so this Samaritan woman comes up and she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, this guy is not Samaritan, he is Jewish, he must be some kind of teacher. And so when he speaks to her, everything in her is like totally knocked back on her heels because she's hated and rejected. And she's obviously hiding from something. We don't know yet what she's hiding from, but he knows that immediately she is breaking down a male-female barrier that exists in the culture. He's breaking down a, um, a Jewish-Gentile um, thing that exists in the culture, and he's breaking breaking down a married unmarried thing that's existing in the culture and he's also breaking down the law keeper versus law breaker that exists in the culture. So immediately what you have Jesus doing at this well is he has taken a big old sledgehammer to the religious law and rules and regulations of the Jewish day and he's going break it. So when he speaks to this woman there is like freedom and dignity already in the just in the that he acknowledged her, looked her in the eyes and said Will you give me a drink? So he he dignifies her as a human being. And if you'll remember, as we talked about last week, and when he talked to Nicodemus, you have Nicodemus, the law keeper. You have this woman who's a law breaker that we're about to see. And you have Jesus who comes in in both situations and dignifies and gives life and acknowledges. And if there's any picture anywhere in all the scripture where Jesus leaves the 99, if you know that verse or parable, and he goes after the, this is it. Because he left the lands of Israel that they would have known. He crossed into the forbidden lands of Samaria. And he did it all for the sake of? And a woman, no less. Who would have been hated, despised, and spurned. So people seeing Jesus doing this, even speaking to her, what do you think would have been whispered? What's going on later? You need to go there. That is how, like... Jesus was so unafraid of perception. He's so unafraid of what's being spoken or said. What he is interested in is the life of a human. And just that he sits down and asks for a drink, he extends dignity. He extends honor. He extends knowing and being known. And he extends this invitation to come and have significant, deep, intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. All that through a couple words. So good. Will you give me a drink? And it says in parentheses, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, that tells me one thing in particular. Those disciples, uh, which were fishermen and tax collectors and a group of unusual guys, uh, would have been so prejudiced that a few months earlier, would they have ever gone into Samaria to buy food? Not a chance. So what's happening already in this moment is they've journeyed with Jesus enough, and I think there's an unperceived heart change that is happening in these guys already because they're going to march into a city that they never would have even touched before, certainly would have got, not have uh, attended or gone to on purpose, but not only are going to go to it, they're going to go to it to buy food. So you get to see uh, the living, active uh, transformation of the disciples at work. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? So she's bringing it up. I love that Jesus doesn't like, he's not like, do these two things, or pray this one prayer, or I don't know. Everything's about inviting her into freedom, inviting her into life, um, showing her who this God the Father is, inviting her to take the next step. And so she, she confronts him. How can you Ask me for a drink. And then in parentheses, John says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's like as understated as you could possibly make it. I mean, I don't. There's so much prejudice here, it's unbelievable. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay, a couple of things here. Um, Anyone in this day and age uh, would have understood living water to be a moving uh, stream, river, or body of water, okay? Everyone would have also understood that dead water or non-life-giving water was any water that was stale and stagnant, So uh, you actually even have a um, geographic picture that begins to come to light sort of through the text here, and it's the Sea of Galilee, which Jesus is heading to, is actually a sea up in the northern part of Israel, and the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee, through the Sea of Galilee, and then out of the Sea of Galilee, and then in the very southern part of Israel, you have this sea called the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is simply a place where water collects, there's no output, um, and it evaporates and it's left all this salt and it's so salty you can go and like float on the surface and not even sink. So you have this contrast between what is living water and what is dead water. Now, let me, uh, let's dip back into Revelation 21, because I want you to see that if, you have, if you've got your, that marked or whatever you're doing. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 6, here's what it says, He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So this is Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the beginning and end of the Greek alphabet. So that means I'm the bookend of life. I'm the bookend of creation. I'm the beginning and the end of your life, of your kid's life, of your family, of history. I am the the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the in the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life." Okay, go back to our verse. If you knew, verse 10, I'm in John 4, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Living water is not um, particularly a new concept. Um, he's transforming the concept a little bit, but this lady would have fully grasped, and, and if with any spiritual perception and discernment, she would have understood what he was trying to communicate, okay? Okay. Let's make, a, let's make a note here because I think this is important. Well, let's read verse 11 because I'll, I'll do it there. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Is Jesus afraid of confusion? Is he afraid of misunderstanding? He's interested in her being in this, this journey towards life in Jesus. Okay, so uh, you have nothing to draw water with. In this day and age, um, all groups that traveled or a person that traveled would have had a leather skin that had been tanned and then tied up in such a way that it could be used to lower into a well and fill up with water and pull up. So everyone would have had a, a, a big leather skin that became kind of like a bucket, and they would have had a cord, and when they came across a well, they lower the thing down, get the water, pull it back up. Okay, so the disciples obviously took this bucket with them because Jesus would have had one. So the the lady says to him, "Um, you have nothing with which to draw water and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Then this is fascinating, verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? You know that's one of those things on the back end of this. She says, why did I say that? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? I said this last week, and I think it reflects here also, but I always look at Jesus' interactions um, like he has a big uh, mirror, and this is important because if Jesus had a big oval mirror and and he's holding it and... um, he, he always starts interactions with a mirror, uh, so if you can envision it like this, sort of angled, so that if I'm talking to Matthew, he can look into the mirror, and what's he see? God. That's right, God. And then as the conversation goes along, there's this point where Jesus shifts the mirror, and he brings it up to vertical, and then what does the person see? In order to walk with God, you must uh, first see him, and then see... It's a very humbling thing when that happens. You don't just see yourself once, by the way. If you're, if you're consistently and deeply walking with Jesus, that moment will happen. At least in my life, it happens about every day. And I go, oh, Lord Jesus. That keeps us humble, right? Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Now bear in mind, Jesus himself is thirsty and hot and tired. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If there's anything I would want for us as a church is that we are progressively become more, becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with a God who we are being filled to that point where we become overflows. We become these springs of living water. And at some point, if you're not um, invoking joy and peace and hope and encouragement in the people around you, I think you have to take a look in the mirror and go, Lord, where am I? What's happening in my journey? would you work in me? Okay. Now, verse 15, um, I think this is, this is fascinating here. Um, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, it, doesn't just, it just doesn't translate well in, in English, but what she is actually saying here is full of sarcasm and jest. So she's kind of throwing something back in his face. Yeah, right. Give me this water then, because I don't want to have to keep sneaking out here at high noon when nobody else is here in my shame and embarrassment to come get water. You give it to me. Now, verse 16, here's this moment where Jesus takes this mirror and he lifts it up so that she has to gaze into it. Now, let me say something as this happens. Um, Jesus convicts he never shames. It's very, very important. And you, you actually see here, uh, and we could really spend a lot of time on this concept, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but Jesus um, invites, he never drives. Um, Jesus uh, encourages, he's never going to manipulate or cajole. So, so what you have here is, is um, an invitation where Jesus convicts, and he is unashamed, he is unwilling, he's a holy God, so he cannot do anything but show you the full weight and repercussions of who you are, where you are. He has to But once you come to him, taking full responsibility and go, Lord, yes, you're right. I acknowledge it. Will you forgive me? It says he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. It doesn't mean we can't stumble back into it, but it does mean it's gone. So if you're laboring under shame or self-like anger at yourself or beating yourself up, um, those things are not God. They are not living in shame, living in condemnation. I can't believe I did. No. And I've spent, I'd just be frank and honest and vulnerable with you all. I've spent a number of years of my life living out from under uh, shame and guilt from a seven-year period from like age 19 to 26, 19 to 27. And it, it, shame is not of God. Authentic conviction, when that mirror goes up, boom, is. And it's for the purpose of us coming to him and saying, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you fill me with this living water? Would you change me and make me new? But if you're living under guilt and shame, that's not God. And I'm not saying it's not real. I'm just saying... You got to begin to shed it and know who he is. And one of the things God's even doing with this Samaritan woman is in using words and in not using words, he is taking this sledgehammer to, the, to, to her beliefs and he is cracking some of this off of her so that she can see God for who he really is. So the invitation for all of us as we open the word, as we come together to worship, as we journey alongside each other, is that we actually begin to have a more accurate picture of who God is, who he is in our life, and then walk that out in, in, that, in relational context with one another. So it's beautiful, but it's also a little messy at points. Okay. So she's sarcastic back to him. And now here's this moment. He tells her, go and call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. And I love this because I think she has just stopped dead in her tracks. So he um, gently but firmly lifts the mirror, and she gazes into her own heart, her own sin, and she's forced to see and to look at what's there. And as she pokes at him and jests and sort of says, you know, sasses off at him, give me this water, he lifts up the mirror, and he allows her to gaze into who she is as a person. I have no husband she replied and jesus said to her you are right when you say you have no husband the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband what you have said is quite true it's a powerful moment i can take you to where i was on the streets when the lord held up a mirror to me and i faced everything and went oh But it's not an invitation to carry guilt and shame. Jesus is actually inviting her to come and drink of this living water and let this burden of her own sin and her own shame and her own guilt. He's inviting her to unload it onto him and drink of this living water. One of the things that we work so hard at with our kids and it's it 's challenging at points, but it 's to um, hold them fully responsible because cheap grace or covering over sin or not acknowledging the things what we 've done wrong is not helpful to anyone you, you hear me it 's also not helpful um, to to um, shame and um, berate and like, I mean, in fact, if there's anything that's more damaging than the former, it's the latter. It's, 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 it's forcing people, um, you know, to, to look too long at their own sin and failure. So there's this like, okay, bring the child to a point where they'll acknowledge what they did, allow them to take full responsibility and go, hey, would you forgive me? And then it's over never bring it back. It's done. It's the same with us. And see, as we model that, even we're working on our inner teams, even at this church, modeling how do you mess up, take responsibility, ask forgiveness, but then move forward. You don't live in it. You don't beat yourself up. You don't beat someone else up. No, 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 no. You drink of the living water of grace, and then you extend it. That's life. Then that's life changing. It's life changing in a family, it's life changing in a church, it's life changing in a community. And if we can be a group of people that's going to recognize every single one of us is going to blow it every day. And the faster we can become the type of people that go, "Man, I really messed up. Would you forgive me?" and appropriate and call on the very risen power of Christ Jesus to cover our sin and forgive ourselves, and forgive those around us, and then move forward, the faster the presence and power of the Lord Jesus enters into whatever context and relationship you're in. Okay. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. This is a manipulative pivot and detour. Crystal clear. No one wants to talk about their own sin, do they? I don't like to. So she um, pivots into a discussion that is um, divisive. Who's right, the Jews or the Samaritans? That's what she does. Verse 21, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So, what Jesus brilliantly does, because this woman uh, thinks um, wrongly that her mountain is the holy mountain and the Jewish mountain is not the holy mountain and Jerusalem is not the holy city, but what Jesus does brilliantly is he sort of threads the needle and he goes, Listen, the time's coming when it isn't your mountain or their mountain, it's a new mountain. So, Jesus just kind of, again, he wrecks the whole thing. Uh, This mountain is neither in Jerusalem, and you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, "'Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks.'" God is spirit and worshipers and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So he actually takes her um, sarcastic bait. Um, He lifts the mirror up and shows her the full weight of her own sin. And then he goes, listen, not only do y'all have it wrong, the Jews have had it right, but it's getting ready to change because I'm instituting a new sacrifice, which is Jesus. That's right. And a new temple, which is the body of Jesus. And then it's going to become the body of? Body of Christ is us, the church. That's exactly right. So he's instituting a new sacrifice, Jesus, the Lamb of God, a new temple, his very body, a new birth. We just did this with Nicodemus, yours and my new birth. And then he introduces new water of life. And then there's a new economy or a new covenant in Christ Jesus where you come to him and you can be a broken, despised, hated woman. And all of a sudden you are made fully new. Okay, Yuri, don't you feel bad? That's a precious, precious little one, and we are glad to have the sounds of life. All right, uh, verse twenty-three is all about worship. Um, there's, there's so much we could do a whole thing on this. Um, one of the things that we are attempting to champion here is a diversity in worship. In other words, God doesn't just come on worship that is an organ or hymn books. He doesn't just come on worship that has lights or a blacked-out auditorium. He doesn't just come on worship that is like prayer room or lingering in style or just on worship that is like big anthems and, you know, big, bold, like, stadium kind of worship. What God comes on and what He respects is the posture of the human heart. And and when the human heart is postured, postured, postured in that way, the presence and power of God will come in worship. Okay, that's thing number one. Thing number two is worship does not just happen in music. Some of you go, I don't know, I can't get into this music stuff. Fine. You know where I worship most powerfully? At the edge of the ocean on a storm, on a boat in a storm, at the edge of Victoria Falls at the, one of the most powerful t- nights in my life was sleeping on the top of my safari truck in the middle of the Botswana outback all by myself and standing and watching the sun come up like a fireball over the, over the, the plains. W- worship is an attitude of the heart that flows out of us at all points and times if you're postured right before him. So let me let you into my secret prayer, and this is not theological. Um, I can back it up sort of with Scripture but not fully, so this is strictly Michael, and you should take it as such. But in the new heaven and new earth, my question to God is, Lord Jesus, I had a few mountains on my bucket list, there was a few waves on my bucket list, um, and there was a few adventures on my bucket list that I have traded um, in order to go the path that you've called me to go. In the new heaven and new earth, can I worship you in that setting? That's my prayer. I've really asked him that. I promise. Here's the thing. You can worship God talking to a coworker. You can worship God disciplining your kids. You can worship God driving down the road. You can worship God loving on somebody who's never met Jesus. Worship is an attitude of the heart, and it rises up and flows out within those of us who have tasted the forgiveness of God. It, is, it, it happens in all settings. Let us be a church that worships. And if music accompanies it, great. Okay enough said. (laughs) Verse 25, the woman said, this is so powerful. I hope Lord let us get this. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So she's educated. She understands. She's got some significant learning in spite of, we don't know whether she has slept with five men she's been married to five men she's had multiple we, I'm not, i do not really even know and can't unpack altogether what that means i just know that she has colored outside the lines of what's acceptable both in the mosaic law in the um, samaritan law and what's socially acceptable of the day okay i think that's all we really need to know is so much has she colored outside these lines that she's hated by her own people and her own friends not just the jews okay make application how you will but this is powerful um, verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, okay, this is so good. <clears throat> you, you are hard pressed. In fact, I've sat in uh, religious classes, I've sat in seminary classes, and they'll stand up and say, uh, nowhere does Jesus say that he is God. Okay, I had one professor that just berated me over the head with this thing, and I wasn't totally sure how to answer him as a 19-year-old. And at the end, I just said, I don't know, but I believe. I could answer him now. All right, so I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Okay, Exodus 3.14, quick cross-reference. This is Moses at the burning bush. God has set an ordinary burning bush on fire. May he set an ordinary burning bush like you and me on fire, too. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So, what's God's name? I am. So, Jesus says, I am. I am. So when you look at this in Greek, he's saying, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It's like me saying, um, like, I'm a landscaper, I'm a pastor, I'm a dad, I'm a husband. I am Michael, I am Michael. I am the landscaper, I am the landscaper. Like, if you met me, and I'm talking to Connie out in the hallway, and I'm like, hi, I'm Michael Michael. Hi, I'm a landscaper landscaper. Hi, I'm a pastor pastor. Hi, that's what Jesus is actually doing. And the reason he's doing it is because he's saying, I am, get ready for it. I am. So even in Greek, it's a, it's a double repetitive. It's I am, I am. In any place, in any time, Jesus is saying, I am God. I am I am. And this lady, because she's part of the Samaritan group who, remember I told you they accepted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? She knew exactly what happened at that burning bush. She knew exactly what God said when he said, say say to the Israelites that I am sent you. And when Jesus sits there and goes, I am, I am, it is a total mic drop. I am the Messiah. Boom. She repents right there. Her life is absolutely changed right there. Verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. What's contained in that verse? More than that. Racism, prejudice, what else? Come on, go there. Hatred, yeah, what else? Come on. What is Jesus doing with this woman? And what has he been doing with this woman? Why no one was around? There is distrust. There's distrust and judgment right here. They're surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked him, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, so she left her water jar going, forget the water jar. I'm no longer a water jar. I'm going to be a funnel. I'm going to be a conduit of the living water of God. I don't need a jar anymore. I'm the whole funnel. Like Jesus is now in me. I just met I am who I am. I just met God, the Messiah. And she is like running back to tell everybody. So let's see what happened. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see this man who told me everything I ever did what did Jesus tell her? All of her sin. Ugliness. And in, in, in Jesus's words, looking into his eyes, I can only imagine that what he implied and what was even in his eyes and on his face at that moment was the full revelation and weight of this woman's ugliness and sin. And she read it. Totally lost my place. Where am I, somebody? Thank you. Verse 29, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. So the the town's a couple miles away. I've stood here and looked. Verse 31, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, now remember, he went into this situation how? Hungry, hot, tired, thirsty, sweaty, worn out. I'm sitting down, it's high noon. And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. He's again saying, I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. I am, and I'm actually feeding my soul and my entire being on what you have nothing, what you know nothing of, which is the God of heaven. Then his disciples said to each other, these guys are knuckleheads, aren't they? Could someone have brought him some food? Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. Now, it's January, so nothing is being harvested at this moment. People are starting to plant. But he says, look to the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now, those who reap draw their wages. Even now, they harvest uh, the crop for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps. He's talking about John the Baptist and John's disciples, because they actually ministered in Samaria. So he's saying, John sowed, who's reaping? Jesus, exactly. Verse 38, I sent you to reap what you have not worked, for others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now, uh, there's a rebuke here. So this is what happens. Jesus is now sitting at a well. It's now 1 o'clock in the afternoon, if you did our time, and it's hot, and the woman has run away, and she's left her bucket, and the disciples are back, and they're like, what in the world is happening? And if you looked way onto the horizon, guess what you'd see? A little cloud of dust a group of people running to find the living water. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. Now here's the rebuke. He's actually saying to his disciples, you, because of your prejudice against who? couldn't believe that the fields were actually white with harvest. And instead, because you were unwilling, I chose this lost sheep lady at the well. I've ministered to her. I've set her free. I've filled her now with living water. And she's gone back, verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers." The whole town came to Jesus. That's what it's saying. Did every single person? Probably not, but it's a town of three or 400 people. And this one lady who is radically set free and made new and tastes of the living water goes back and leads the whole town to Jesus. They said to the woman, we no longer believe, these are the townspeople, just because of what you said. We now have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is the Savior of the world. Listen to me. The Jews, the religious people, failed to see who Jesus actually was, and a group of, um, I'm using this word very carefully, but it's because of what the Jews would say, it of half-bred Samaritans, were the ones that first recognized that this man is not simply the Jewish Messiah. He's now the Savior of the world, and he came to save everyone, and and his, uh, the, the divide that he bridges goes over male, female, goes over Gentile, Jew, goes over ethnic divides and brokenness and even groups that have hated each other. And he brings it all together through the water of life, the infilling power of God. That's what is happening right here. And they get it that he is the Savior of the world. This is the Jesus that mixes and mingles with sinners. I love this guy, I'm all in. I'm all in. I think here's the question probably for us. Are you a static pitcher? Have you embraced the call to drink of the living water and become a funnel? Are springs of living water welling up within you? Are you like the Sea of Galilee or are you like the Dead Sea? And it's okay, I think, in your Christian journey to reach a point where you go, Michael, there's some spots where I'm more like the Dead Sea than the Sea of Galilee. And you go, Lord Jesus, would you breathe new life inside of me and I'm going to drink of this living water. And then that's what I'm going to carry when I go out there and interface with people. That's life. That's life. I'm gonna pray. Worship team, why don't you come up? Father, as we have looked at these last two weeks, we've looked at a religious person who's caught and enslaved and ensnared in their own religious, yuck, Nicodemus. And now we've looked at a woman who is caught and enslaved and ensnared in her own sin. And in both cases, we see Jesus, the God of heaven, leaving the 99 to go after the one. Father, I pray for the ones in this room. Lord, I pray for the ones online, the ones on podcasts, the ones wherever they are, that they would sense your spirit beckoning them to drink of the living water of life. Father, I pray for those of us in the room who need to drink of your forgiveness and your grace and stop performing and beating ourselves up and living under shame and condemnation. Lord, I pray that you would wash in at this moment, in this place, in this time, and you would bring freedom. I am, I am. Jesus, would you be our I am? As we close in this song, Uh, Would our prayer team come up? Maybe a few of you up front, a few of you around the side. If you need special prayer, go ask somebody to pray with you. If you're in here or if you're online and you've never given your heart and your life to this Jesus, I'd love to pray with you. One of the prayer team could also pray with you. You can find me up here. You can find me Monday morning right back there. Church, as we close out in this song, let's drink of the living water. Let's leave our pitchers and become funnels. Let's be the conduit of heaven into those who live all around us. Let's stand and worship.